I have not eaten anything today, and I drank a lot of coffee, so maybe I'll be extra jittery, and it'll be fun. Anyway, good morning, everyone. We are in, I think, our sixth week of our newest series on the prophethood, priesthood, and kinghood of Jesus. And we are, of course, working through the, a book by a scholar named Richard Belcher called Prophet, Priest, and King, A Biblical Theology of the Offices of Christ. And so this week, we're actually going to finish up exploring how the scriptures portray Jesus as the ultimate and perfect prophet. Prophets, priests, and kings were the anointed leaders among God's people in the Old Testament. So it's fitting that the Messiah, literally the anointed one, would embrace all of these offices in his person. So Christ acts as our prophet, priest, and king. We are his people. He is our savior, our mediator, and our prophet, priest, and king. And again, I want to encourage us that as, as we talk about this, the goal is that our faith will be strengthened and that our, our thankfulness to God will increase as we, see, um, as we see the perfections of Christ as our mediator and our redeemer. Because he is not just our prophet, but also our priest and our king, we can have further confidence. He's not just our priest. He doesn't just give us forgiveness of sins. He also gives us deliverance from sin's power and in the new heavens and new earth will even be delivered fully from sin's very presence we're not just our, our souls aren't merely delivered but because Jesus died defeated death rose again our bodies will be resurrected one day and glorified to never ever experience pain or aging, or sickness again. And I don't know about you guys, but I am very thankful <laughs> for that, especially as my skateboarding uh, skills decrease as I get older. Um, yes, skateboarding. That's right, Selah. Um, so, I also want to point out that this realization that Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, this also helps us read our Bibles, especially our Old Testament, um, because we can see that everything is pointing to Christ in a deeper way, even the roles of prophet, priest, and king, and all the stories about Israel's various prophets, priests, and king, kings can teach us about the coming Messiah. They should be creating in us a longing for a greater prophet, priest, and king as we see all the ways that they failed. And they should also give us encouragement when we think of how they failed, but Jesus does not fail. So we can, we can have a, a fuller picture of the work of Christ in that way, even as we read the Old Testament. So I want to again, this is, this is my favorite part. I want to have us read the questions and answers on your note sheet and just to, to remind us again of of 
where we're headed in, in these lessons and the purpose. Um, let's just go ahead and start with question 23. Um, we'll skip 22, but I'm going to read the question and I want each of you to read the answer. Um, and as you read the answers, be thinking about, uh, yeah, the perfections of Christ as our Savior. So, all right, question 23 on your note sheet. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Yes, amen. Now I want to do the children's catechism. And I love this because it's so simple, but so helpful. And so I, yeah, I love using this kind of thing with adults because it's like, this is what I need. It's, it's uh, way easier to understand. So, Christian, why do you need Christ as a prophet? And why do you need Christ as a priest? And Christian, why do you need Christ as a king? Amen. You know, it really makes sense that Christ fulfills all these roles because we have so many different problems. We have multiple enemies. We have our sin, death, the devil. Um, we have, we have, our, our problem goes deeper than just our, um, the fact that we live in a fallen world. We're also separated from God because of our sin. And so we could talk, you know, we, we could go on and on about all our problems. And, and so praise God that the Redeemer is, has a multifaceted identity and, and therefore is able to completely reconcile us and completely restore us and completely reverse the effects of the curse all right, so we're going to do a little bit of review um, before we really jump into new material. Uh, I want to remind us that the work of the prophet in the Old Testament centered not on telling the future, not on doing signs and wonders. It centered on the word of God and prayer. And so on your note sheet, uh, you'll see I, I have the, the bullets from last week, but we're going to do a <clears throat> fairly quick review. So looking at the ministry of John the Baptist, who, I wonder if he was a Reformed Baptist. Does anyone know? <laughs> um, What's a Reformed Baptist? I'm sorry, I'm new. No, you're fine. Good Desmond or Kyle, <laughs> would you like to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, a Reformed Baptist, that's kind of like uh, a, a Baptist who holds to like Oh, this is, yeah, that's a good, perfect Sabrina. Yeah, like it's a Baptist who holds to the five solas of the Reformation, which is probably a bad answer because that brings up, well, what are the five solas of the Reformation? <laughs> um, it, you got it. it Help me, Harrison. It, it's a, it centers on the sovereignty of God in all things and in the, in the affairs of men in raising dead men to life. Whereas the uh, typical, um, t today's typical Baptist 
would believe that you're free to choose, uh, and, you know, um, uh, to follow God. And some and people can follow God without the work of the Spirit. They can choose on their own. Whereas the Reformed Baptist says, no, the Bible says you're dead in sin. You need God to raise you to life so that you'll choose God. Yeah. So God causes us to choose him? Yes. We don't choose. We do choose, but we need to be uh, awakened by God. We need to be raised to life. Just like Lazarus chose to, um, you know, to come out of the cave. He needed to be resurrected to come out of the cave. You know, he needed to be he needed to be raised to life to be able to do that. Yeah. But he still chose yeah. it in and of, you know, he still chose it, but he needed to be raised to be able to choose it. Yeah. And that's why God has all the power. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay, man. You yeah. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Harrison. And that, that really is a good question. And yeah, I, I'm glad that's your reaction because it is a beautiful doctrine because it highlights the complete grace and power of God. Yes. We, we, weren't, we didn't even contribute our, uh, like a decision to our salvation. It's not like God, God loves us because we, we took a step towards him. It's we were spiritually dead with no chance of coming to him in and of ourselves, but it's that God raised us from the dead spiritually, gave us life so that we would freely choose him. Um, so yeah, thank you for that thank, question. Thank you. thank you. And thank you, Harrison, for the assist. I got you, bro. Yeah, thank you. That's great. I need the help. So, John the Baptist, who uh, may be a Reformed Baptist, apparently, he, uh, he comes along, and people ask him if he's the prophet. This is interesting, because it shows they were expecting for a prophet to come. People around this time were looking for a coming prophet, like what was prophesied in places like Deuteronomy 18. Now, by way of review, I know not everyone's here last week, but does anyone remember, did Jesus receive any kind of call to ministry? And if so, when? Kyle, you are allowed to answer, even though you're also reading the book, but you are allowed to answer if, if no one else... Uh, Wants to, or yeah, re, yeah. Did Jesus receive a sort of call to ministry? Okay, I wasn't here, and this might be the wrong answer. Okay, yeah, you're fine. But his call was directly from the Father before he ever came. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you're right. I think there's also something that happens in his life, though, that we could kind of point to. Yeah, what did you say, Jordan, Right when he was baptized by John, the Spirit descends. Yeah. Yeah, and that was, that was God the Father's approval and commission. Yeah. 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 Amen. Yeah, I think you're right, Diana Lynn, but I think that the at Jesus' baptism, like Kyle said, the Father speaks, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit descends upon him. And so this is significant because many of the prophets of old they were anointed too. They were anointed with oil. But Jesus, as the greater prophet, he is anointed as the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And so, it's beautiful. It's interesting. I, I knew that's what you were getting at, but I didn't think to, to, to use that terminology for it. 
like a calling terminology. Yeah, because yeah. He, he knew yeah. to be baptized. He knew to be baptized. He said permitted at this time. Yeah. You know? So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I see it as kind of like an external... Like, obviously, Jesus didn't need to prove himself to anyone. Like, he is, he is who he is, and no one can change that. Um, but it's like God's external stamp of approval. Yeah, and, and so that for the benefit of all those who are watching, and even for our benefit as we have it recorded in Scripture. So, yeah, I think it's a helpful way to think of the baptism of Christ. Now... Go ahead and turn to Matthew 3. And who can read really, really loud so the recording picks it up well? Who can read uh, verses 11 and 12? Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Hi, Andre. It's good to see you. Yeah, Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Is it okay if I bring the, um, this is the King James Version? Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. We don't discriminate. I'm trying to understand it myself. 11 and 12? Yeah. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I. Whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garden. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So, how is John's message here similar to the messages of the prophets who came before him? What do you guys think? Yeah. The only thing I know about prophets is the prophecy, right? Yeah. So they probably yeah. was telling things to come. So maybe John the Baptist was preaching Jesus is coming. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. They they tell of things to come and they also explain God's revelation. They explain God's word. And so it's helpful because I think when we think about prophets, we mostly think of, oh, they're telling the future. But what much more often happens in God's words, we see that the prophets are not just like foretelling the future. They're like foretelling. They're explaining God's revelation. They're explaining God's covenant, um, explaining how God's people have often fallen short. And so they're proclaiming a judgment to come and a salvation to come. Um, but yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah, does anyone... So how is John's message here? How is it similar to the messages of the prophets who came before him? Cecily, is that a hand? No. <laughs> okay. I see that hand. <laughs> I see that hand too, Sarai. I'm not going to make the same mistake. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, go for it. So it, it's similar in the fact that, you know, he, um, he sees, him, I mean, he sees himself as the 
fulfillment of Isaiah 40, yeah. the voice in the wilderness. So it's continuing that uh, prophetic succession, yeah. if you will. So he sees himself as preparing the way for the Lord? Yeah. Okay, yeah. And, um, and he's preaching the, the, the same exact message of the Messiah's coming. Yeah. And, um, but just more imminently than um, the others. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, go for it, Kyle. And then too, like, associated with that, because he's coming, uh, the, the call to repentance. The yeah. Call to prepare, the call to, uh, uh, to, to turn. Yeah. To turn to him, repent of idolatry, come to the Lord. Yeah. 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 Hollowness of the, like, hollow religion, you know, but come to him with a heart change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah amen. That's so, so huge. Yeah, and it's like, he's coming soon. You, yeah. you got to be ready. Yeah, and he's preaching, just like most of the prophets, uh, he's preaching judgment. Yeah, yeah. Because he's saying, he, yep. his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear his threshing floor. Yep. Yeah, no. yeah and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That is judgment. Yeah. He's talking about a coming judgment. Um, sorry, Daniela, what were you going to say? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, Hebrews says, God spoke in times past through the prophet, but now he's spoken through his son. So John the Baptist is introducing the word himself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's even more exciting. Yeah. Amen. I have a quick question. Yeah. Uh, okay, so there's a judgment coming. It's because it was not living of God? So the judgment is coming, he had to warn them? Or, like, why, why is this judgment coming? Yeah, I mean, the shortest answer is the judgment is coming because all of us, humanity, we have rebelled against God, our perfectly good, holy, loving creator. And because God is just, God is, is pure. He, he can't even look at evil, so to speak. He must punish what is evil. And yet it's because of his great mercy and patience that he would even delay the judgment and that he would even make a way for any sinner like us to be saved. And so that, that is what, you know, John is talking about the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, who will actually make it so that guilty sinners who deserve nothing but God's wrath can be reconciled to God, can be cleansed of their sin. And Jesus, Jesus takes, when he dies on the cross, he's taking the weight of our sin upon himself. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to say, but Thank good you. question. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, so you guys all had really good answers. The, the thing I was getting at is that his message is similar because it's one of both judgment and salvation. Because not only does he talk about he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, but look at in verse 12 how it says he will also gather his wheat into the barn. That is a, that's a picture of salvation for his people. And so that's, that's exactly what, uh, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the minor prophets, that's exactly what they were doing. They were prophesying of a coming day of the Lord where there would be both final judgment and final salvation. So... Now, uh, go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. And could I have somebody read verses 47 to 48? 
Nice and loud. Who can read uh, John 12, 47 to 48? Don't be shy, or I'll do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sabrina's got it. Thank you. And if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words as one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. Yeah. Thank you. So, what would be potentially surprising about this to faithful Jews like John, John the Baptist, who were awaiting the coming of the Messiah? What would be surprising, potentially, about what Jesus says here? Well, he said he's going to save the world, not just the Jews. Very good. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good point. And he's not bringing swift judgment. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, the judgment is still in the future. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And so we talked a little bit about this last week, but John the Baptist, uh, just like the prophets of old, he told of the coming day of the Lord, which would bring an end to history with both final salvation and judgment. And so last week we talked about how John the Baptist, after he had been arrested, he very well may have been confused because Jesus, he was mighty in word and deed. He was doing all the things that they thought the coming one would do except for the end times type judgment. And John's like, what's going on? God's enemies have arrested me. Like I'm, I'm preparing the way for the Lord, but God's enemies have just had their way with me. They throw me in jail. And so when he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the coming one or should we wait for another we talked about how he, he very well may have been confused and, and a little bit stumbling at this point of what's going on. But what John didn't yet understand was that there would be a second coming. And, and he didn't yet understand the purpose even of Jesus' first coming, perhaps. The great day of judgment will come, but it will not be until Jesus comes back. And praise God that the final judgment will be delayed. It's delayed so that repentance for the forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed in the name of Jesus to all nations, as Luke 24 says. It's so that his kingdom can spread all over the earth. So we should praise God for his patience and mercy in delaying this judgment. So now moving on, a prophet like Moses, and this is still by way of review. We're just getting warmed up. Um, can anyone remember some of the ways that Jesus was a prophet like Moses or how Jesus also surpassed Moses? Deuteronomy 18 said, a prophet like me will come. Why could it not have been some of the other prophets who came after Moses? things. Um, <clears throat> well, Moses spoke of, uh, he spoke the word of God. Um, 
Jesus spoke the word of God, but he was also the word of God. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, Moses was bringing the people into um, a land of promise, but didn't get there. Yep. Um, Joshua had to complete the mission, but Christ does bring us into that final land uh, promise. Moses uh, represents the law. Yeah. Uh, Christ uh, represents grace and the gospel. Yeah. Um, yeah, like so new covenant, got a like old covenant, new covenant thing perhaps going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Is it possible that Jesus was closer to God than Moses was? Yeah. Because I realized I just started reading Exodus. Yeah. Moses was used by God similar to what's his name? Uh, yo, uh, Paul. Yeah. You know, before Paul came to ministry, uh-huh. he was a murderer. Yeah. So was Moses. Yeah. Jesus was not. Yeah. So he could be closer to God. Yeah, that's a good connection about Paul and Moses. I hadn't thought about that before. Um, but yeah, that's that's really that's a good, great thought and. Jesus was not just closer to God in, in kind of like a, you know, he, he's a little bit more of a buddy. It's like Jesus, Jesus is God. He's God the Son. And as God the Son, he has been eternally before God the Father. And, and so Moses, you know, Exodus 34 says that Moses spoke directly to God face to face. And that sets Moses apart from any of the other prophets like Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Moses was different, set apart. But Jesus has an even closer relationship to the God of Moses because it's his own father. And before the world began, he was in his presence and shared in his glory as, as uh, John 17 talks about a little bit and, and John 1. And so... So yeah, there's a lot of ways that Jesus is like Moses, but also greater, as Pastor Desmond shared a few. And yeah, just to highlight a couple. So he has, he's greater than Moses because he's not merely a man. He is fully God and fully man. And he's also, of course, greater than Moses because he brings a greater deliverance. Moses delivered the Israelites. God, through Moses, brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt but it is Jesus who fully and eternally brings his people out of slavery to sin and to the devil. That's a lot better, if you ask me. Because when the Israelites, obviously, their greatest enemy wasn't even Pharaoh or the Egyptians who enslaved them. Because, you know, right after they got out of Egypt, their problems continued. Because the, their fundamental problem was within. It was, it was um, the sin inside their hearts, their rebellion against God, refusing to follow the God who had just delivered them, who had already shown so much love. It, it, like he, he chose them as his people, set them apart. Um, so they were rebelling against so much grace. Um, so final review section, Jesus is a prophet, mighty in word. During his earthly ministry, of course, Jesus was mighty in his use of God's word. We see this in his temptation in the wilderness. And since we're already, I think we're still in John 12. Could someone just read 49 and 50 real quick? So I have a 
have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command. What I say and what I speak, and I know that this command is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Perfect. So how does this highlight Jesus' prophethood? Prophets are spokesmen for who? Yeah. And so right here, Jesus is saying, I, I speak not on my own authority, but I say what the Father has told me. And so it's, it's kind of it's interesting. It's like, well, Jesus as the God-man, in a sense, like his, his own authority is, is all he needs. But again, I think this highlights his role. He is fulfilling the role of a prophet. So he's God's spokesman. And of course, Jesus was also mighty in word and the authority of his teaching. In Matthew 5, 27 to 28, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so this is a really good example of how Jesus Jesus demonstrates his authority through even how he teaches the word of God. And people were astonished by this. Their, their teachers would look to tradition. They'd be quoting the other scribes, the other teachers, but Jesus taught with authority, his own authority. And so I also think it's striking that the prophets of old would preface their messages with thus saith the lord but jesus never did that he didn't need to use that formula because he is the lord so he would say things like truly truly i say to you and you have heard it said but i say all right finally we're to the new material um so looking at section d we're going to talk about how jesus not only fulfills the work of a prophet in speaking the word of god But in his earthly ministry, he also fulfills the ministry of prophet through his prayer life. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 5. And could I have a volunteer read um, Luke 5, 15 and 16? striking about these verses anything yeah anything stick out to you from those verses he was in trouble internally and he prayed to God to help him with it hmm yeah what makes you say in trouble internally oh I don't know if it's internally I just know mm-hmm. uh, I just sit there up uh, Fame? Yeah. Oh, fame. I thought it said fame. My bad. No, you're fine. No, I mean, My yeah. Bad. No. My bad. I mean, I think in a sense you. I think in a sense you could definitely say that. I mean, Jesus was a man like us, and he was tired. I'm sure, exhausted, burdened. So yeah. 
Yeah, anything else? What, what do these verses show us about how Jesus prioritized prayer? It is crazy to think about there were people that Jesus didn't heal. He didn't spend all of, you know, it's like, well, if I could heal people, I would just spend all my time going to every hospital in the world. You know, like that's, that's how we, that's how it's easy to think about it. But, but yeah, like Miriam said, Jesus came to achieve full and final healing for his people, not just merely temporal healing and that's even what his you know the healings that he did do ultimately point to that but yeah it's it's very interesting to think about how jesus you know it it almost could sound unloving it's like oh there were people trying to get healed and jesus like went and prayed or like jesus went to the next town like what's going on with that um but yeah that was really helpful Mary. anything else about how uh, how do these verses show the priority that Jesus placed on prayer? Well, the scripture says that um, he did nothing except for what his father told him to do. Mm-hmm. So he was still, as a man, he was submissive mm-hmm. to God and dependent on God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's right. I mean, if he wasn't submissive to God and dependent on God as a man, he would not be living the perfect life in our place that we can never live. Yeah. Yeah, he was fulfilling all righteousness. Yeah, Kyle? In verse 16, it does make it seem like that this was a continual practice, not like a one-time did in the past. That's right. But Mm. that he would, you know, and it seems like you could insert the phrase like he he would continually or continue to have that sense of like you know, iterations yeah like one time. yeah really good yeah good point absolutely prayer was a constant part of the life of our lord we see i mean obviously that the purpose of the gospels is not to record every time jesus prayed but even so we still see that he prayed at his baptism uh he it's recorded that he prayed before he chose his disciples um after the feeding of the five thousand. Um, He's praying when he's transfigured. Uh, He's praying in the garden before his betrayal. And and even on the cross, he prays. And we know also, I think, from verse 16, he spent lengthy times in prayer. It wasn't just, uh, you know, one-off little prayers throughout the day. But we see examples of him both waking up early to pray and staying up late to pray. 
And this is this goes above and beyond typical Jewish practice. Uh, it, it was, I think, normal for faithful Jews to pray three times a day at sunrise, in the afternoon, and at sunset. And so think about the, the prophet Daniel in the book of Daniel. He, it says he prayed three times a day, as was his custom. But, of course, Jesus goes above and beyond this, the spending prolonged time in prayer at night was, I, you know, very un- uncommon, um, if, if not unheard of. Hebrews 5, 7, you can go ahead and turn there, and I'll, I'll read it for us. Hebrews 5, 7 says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So that Jesus literally wrestled with the Father in prayer is a testimony to his true humanity. And not only that, but it places him right in line with the saints of old. You know, think of the Psalms of lament, of wrestling with God. God, where are you? Why, why, why does it seem like you're completely absent? Um, it puts him in line with the prophets, like Habakkuk, if that's how you say it, and Jeremiah. They wrestled with God in prayers. They faced insane amounts of suffering and rejection because of their faithfulness. And so I, I think we see Christ's humanity highlighted here. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human, dependent on the Father. And it's distri- that it is demonstrated in his life of prayer. And of course, I think we also need to mention the Lord's Prayer here, because not only did Jesus fulfill the role of prophet in his prayer life, but he also authoritatively has taught us to pray. And the Lord's Prayer should be a crucial tool that we go back to time and time again as we try to understand how to pray and what to pray for. So prayer is one of the means by which Jesus fulfills his messianic ministry. And Jesus lived in perfect communion with the Father, something we can, not even as Christians, can we come close to attaining that. His prayer life was perfect, and even now, He is currently interceding for us as he sits at the right hand of God. So his prayer ministry was not just during his humiliation, during his life on earth, but it continues even in his exalted state as he is reigning at the right hand of God. And, spoiler alert, but in the coming weeks we'll also see how the word of God in prayer are not only defining for Jesus' ministry, but it's also defining for the work of the apostles and the elders of the church who come after him. So now, looking at section E, we're going to talk about the suffering of Christ. Just like many of the prophets of old, Jesus was willing to suffer for the truth he proclaimed. According to Richard Belcher, Jeremiah perhaps represents the the most complete foreshadowing of the suffering that Jesus would experience. 
something that I, I was reminded of is that Jeremiah actually wrote in chapter 11, verse 19, he said that he, Jer- he himself was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And I was like, whoa, that someone in the Bible before Jesus was also said to be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Uh, that was really interesting to me. And yet, you know, Jeremiah may not have given his life, um, at least it's not recorded in the Bible that he gave his life, uh, but other prophets in the Old Testament did, like Zechariah. And Jesus died too, of course, but as the eternal son of God, there was something qualitatively different about his death because his death was in atonement for sin. He died as the spotless lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. So Jesus is also the only truly innocent sufferer in all of human history. So that's an, that's also key that even though the prophets were the prophets of old may have been killed out of faithfulness to God, but it, it's not to, to say that they themselves were spotless. They too ultimately needed a mediator, someone to reconcile them to God, someone to pay for their sin. And so when Christ died, he died as a substitute. And when he rose again, he fully defeated death for all who are united to him by faith. So we're going to go to Luke 23, and I want, to, I want to point out another connection to the prophethood of Christ. So go ahead and uh, turn to Luke 23, and who can read verses 26 through 31? Diane Lynn, you got it. Nice and loud. Okay, Luke 23, verse 26. Uh, yeah, 26 to 31. Okay. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Thank I'll you. Go on. No, you're good. That's okay, good. So. Thank you. So, what is Jesus doing here? Even as he's going to the cross. Like a true... Oh, yeah, Andre. Uh, I think with the statement, like, like what he said in uh, verse... Verse 28, when he says, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves. I think he's referring to the 
judgment to come. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah. I think it's in Revelation mm-hmm. when God's wrath is coming. I think. Yeah. The unbelievers are like hiding under caves or mountains. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I believe that's what he's referring to here. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating that even as Jesus is going to the cross, like the true prophet that he is, he's continuing to preach a message of judgment. And I think that, you know, this message specifically is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem um, around AD 70, when Jerusalem was so brutally destroyed that, that people were, you know, crying to the mountains to fall on them. Um, but also, it's a both and. It also does ultimately point to the final judgment. And so, you know, his, he's preaching a message of judgment because blessed are the barren. It's like, what? That's, that's you know, childlessness is th- throughout the Bible a, a bad thing, a curse. Um, but it's not, the only thing worse than that is, is when you're seeing your kids suffer and die. And so that, that's the point is that this coming judgment is so terrible that liter- there's going to be a reverse. It's like, blessed are those who, who are barren, who don't have to see their kids suffer and die. Um, and so, yeah, Jesus still true to his prophethood. And then Luke 23, 48, the, he's, he's preaching of God's judgment, but then later on the cross with the repentant thief, he still is preaching a message of salvation. And he says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus, as the ultimate prophet, even to the, the last moments before his death on the cross, is both warning of God's coming judgment and proclaiming God, the salvation in, him, in himself. So finally, looking at a prophet mighty indeed. In Luke 24, 19, Jesus is identified as a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. In Luke 7, 16, Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead. And their response is, wow, a great prophet has arisen among us. And so there was a connection for them between the mighty deeds, miracles, and being a prophet. And that's not the sum total of being a prophet, of course, but it is an important aspect. And it makes sense because Moses, Elijah, Elisha, prophets like these also had ministries of powerful deeds. And I want to, we don't have too much time left, but I want to especially highlight the connection here between Moses and Jesus in this regard. Because when, when did Moses... Uh, perform the greatest uh, wonders. It was, it was during the delivery from Egypt through the plagues, parting of the Red Sea. God performed these great wonders through Moses to deliver his people from slavery. But we, we also don't want to miss that in the, in the Exodus, it was much more significant than just Israel getting out of slavery to Egypt there's also like a cosmic thing going on. God was proving his supremacy 
over the Egyptian gods who weren't even real gods at all. He was proving his supremacy over the, the world. This was Pharaoh, the most powerful of all kings, who was thought to even be a god himself. And so God was also having a spiritual victory over the forces of evil in a way. Real quick, turn to Luke 9, since we're already in Luke. I want to point out something really interesting. At the transfiguration in Luke 9, Jesus' death in Jerusalem is actually referred to as his exodus. You might miss this in the ESV, because I think it translates it to departure. But it says that Moses and Elijah appear, they're talking with Jesus. And what do they talk about? They talk about his departure or exodus that he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The, the word here is the exact same word that is used all throughout the book of Exodus in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so let me real quick pose this question. What do you think is significant about Luke's choice of words here? What is significant that Luke would pick the exact same word uh, that, that Luke would describe Jesus' suffering in Jerusalem as an exodus. What do you guys think? Well, it's, it's in line with the pattern set with Moses and then mm -hmm. the prophets see when uh, God's people were put in exile, there would be this spiritual deliverance, not just taking them out, out of Babylon, Mm. But it would be uh, a transformation, forgiveness of sins, all these changes you see in Isaiah and others. Yeah. And it was used in Exodus language of deliverance, redeem, yeah. out, and take, you know, take two, you know, all those type of words. So then it makes sense that, you know, yeah. Moses, who sets the pattern, right, and, and Jesus are talking about this greater deliverance now, now coming. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, this kind of stuff just blows my mind and above all points to the divine authorship of the bible um you know there's scores of connections like these and just yeah the the gospel writer luke is using the old testament to to highlight and explain more about jesus's uh deliverance and work um so he's bringing to mind the the great the greatest redemptive event of the old testament that would be the Exodus, and he's bringing that to mind intentionally with his language. So Moses performed mighty deeds in deliverance from Israel, but it's Jesus who performed even mightier deeds in deliverance of his people from even greater enemies, sin, death, the devil. So Jesus brings a greater deliverance than Moses. We unfortunately don't have enough time for one more cool connection, uh, but it's okay. I highlighted it in blue because I was like, I don't think we'll have enough time for this. Yeah. I, I want to summarize. Uh, Jesus is a prophet mighty in word and deed. Um, and as, as Belcher summarizes, his ministry is effective because he's not just a human prophet. He's not just a human prophet prone to all the failures and weaknesses that we are. And he does not just proclaim the word of God. He is the word of God himself who was with God from the beginning, as it talks about in John 1. And one of the most 
Amazing things to think about, too, is Jesus continues his prophetic ministry even now. He's ascended to heaven, but after he ascended to heaven, he gave his apostles further revelation of his word through the Spirit, what we now have in the New Testament. And think about the book of Acts. Jesus was continuing to work all throughout as the proclamation of the word caused the church to grow. There was a a commentator uh, named Alan Thompson that uh, said something really helpful. He said, you know, we think of Acts as the Acts of the Apostles. We think of it as like the Acts of the early church. But he argues that rather than that, we should think of the book of Acts as the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus. Because it's Jesus who all throughout is the one who is working by his spirit and through his people as the word of God spreads. And so it's highlighted for us in Acts. There's six summary statements throughout the book. Uh, You can ask me for the references later if you're interested, but six summary statements where each time the word of God is said to be at the heart of the growth of the church, either explicitly or at least implicitly. So Jesus promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit would lead them into further truth. And, and we have that for us today in the apostolic teaching preserved for us right here. As a prophet, he continues to speak to us in his word, and especially through the preaching of the word, even today. And we, I think it's helpful to think about sin having, there's a threefold problem with sin. Because we are sinners, we, we are uh, enslaved to the power of sin. We deserve punishment for our sin. And also, we suffer from the presence of sin. There's, the presence of sin in this world is the root cause of disease, death, war, poverty, um, sickness, the fact that wild animals can kill you. Uh, it wasn't like that before the fall. Um, but because Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king, he achieves full deliverance. And so I think in the same way that we can think of Jesus's role as priest as being what is the answer to the problem of our guiltiness, his role as priest is what saves us from the punishment due to our sin. We can maybe think of his role as prophet as part of what delivers us from the power of sin because it is as we hear the word preached um, as God works in our lives through the word um, the reading of the word the preaching of the word the singing of the word the praying of the word the as we see the word visibly in the Lord's Supper and in baptism God is working increasingly sanctifying his people and delivering us from the power of sin so I think we are out of time and let me close with prayer real quick sorry did you have a quick question oh no I was, i'm just feeling crazy brother yeah please pray for you uh, oh yeah yeah, yeah. praise god um lord thank you so much uh you are so good to us we need you we are weak and helpless uh open our eyes to see uh to see christ and uh help us to trust him and and continue to follow him um We need you. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen.